Downtown Plymouth bears a passing resemblance to quintessential coastal Massachusetts towns. With wood buildings painted a charmingly faded and chipped pastel, brick sidewalks warped with time, and a relative lack of multinational corporations, with the customary New England exception for Dunkin' Donuts. But whereas the towns of Cape Cod and the North Shore look and feel like homages to Herman Melville with lip service concessions to non-fiction existence, Plymouth feels more like a real place. There are traffic lights, the roads are wide enough for cars to fit, and there are restaurants here that don't serve lobster. You can imagine people living here year-round. Plymouth is known best for its rock, which is burned into the minds of Massachusetts children every November. But it also has a strong fishing industry and a nuclear power plant. And more importantly for this podcast, it's changing in a manner that could possibly be gentrification. I'm Ajay Pandey, and this is Perfectly Nice Neighbors, an exploration of gentrification in the Boston area. Plymouth's downtown is classic New England fare. There's not really a clear beginning and end, but it mostly rests on a single street, with the town common and a school tucked away at one end. The buildings here look old enough to be charming, but not so old as to look dangerous. The road had a good amount of traffic, even at 10 on a Wednesday, and the sidewalks are dotted with elaborately decorated lobster statues. But this isn't just the main street of a coastal town. Downtown Plymouth is mere minutes from the waterfront. I could see the blue-gray horizon of the Cape Cod Bay to my east, and the sea breeze beckoned me to walk to the shore and lose myself to the sea to become an invisible eyeball if only for a few minutes. But I had things to do. Notes to take, interviews to conduct, and a case study to produce. Mr. Hartman, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Lee Hartman is the Director of Planning and Development for Plymouth. I've been involved one way or another in the town since 1987. Was a resident here for a long time, raised my family in Plymouth, and have held the current position of Director of Planning and Development for about the last 14 years. As it turns out, the Department of Planning and Development manages quite a bit. The Conservation Commission, the Zoning Board of Appeals, Historic District Commission, Planning Board, Community Development, and to some degree tourism, economic development, and redevelopment. Among a couple more projects. Which makes Mr. Harbin's perspective very interesting. What do you usually keep in mind when looking at a proposal? So when we look over in the broad scheme, we have a master plan. Plymouth is a town of 103 square miles. It's the largest landmass town in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So our master plan identifies five village centers. That's the area where we want to direct growth, and that's where we want to invest in our infrastructure and our public investment in those five village centers. And then in the remaining part of the town, which is probably about 75% of the town, is our rural parts of town. So the whole rationale for that layout is that we can't possibly provide services over 103 square miles to all residents in all areas. So we want to try to concentrate that development in our village centers and do whatever we can to either protect open space in those rural areas or limit development. 
There is still development in those rural areas, but Mr. Hartman isn't kidding about maintaining open space. The zoning in rural Plymouth is set at one house to three acres, which effectively means that more than half the plot is open space. Even the larger developments are held to an open space requirement. The Pine Hills, which is a 3,000 acre, 3,000 some on home development, 70% of that has to be set aside as open space. That could include golf. Pine Hills does have a golf course. The second one we have, which is Redbrook, it's done by the AD Makepeace Company, and that's has a 400 acre footprint for development for 1,200 homes, but 1,600 acres of permanently protected open space as part of that project. How have you seen Plymouth change since you first got involved with planning? When I first came here, there were five traffic lights. I came here, the population was probably about 30,000, and now we're getting close to 60,000. Being a coastal community near the Cape and near Boston and near Providence, it's a very desirable place for people to come live. Even during the last recession, which was almost a depression, we were still looking at 150-plus homes being built each and every year, even wow. during that downtown. Yeah. Let's repeat that. Plymouth was building in the wake of the largest economic catastrophe in over half a century. The town has been growing for decades, and it's still growing, with developments like Pine Hills, Red Brook, and the Cordage Center, which is repurposing a factory in North Plymouth. Cordage's rope. At one point, they produced most of the rope for the military during World War II. And that old mill complex is now going through revitalization. It's a smart growth 40R district. It's been approved for 675 units of residential development. It also has over 300,000 square feet of commercial space there today, so it's a very vibrant area close to the highway and has access to the MBTA. So we also look at areas like that where we have an underutilized waterfront piece of property and encourage a mix of commercial and residential uses with a fair component of affordable housing as part of that. And finally, do you worry about gentrification in Plymouth? Not something, no, not something we really have worried a lot about. Just recently, we see a number of developments downtown in the waterfront that are being converted from traditional uses to residential. But we've also been able to maintain a pretty good mix of residential and commercial uses in our downtown. And that is something that you were actively working to maintain. Yes, and still very much a um, mix of income levels that are in, in the community too. So if you look, the median household price tends to be a little more affordable than some of the surrounding towns. There is still a, a more affordable component to housing in Plymouth than you see in other communities. Mr. Hartman showed me the definition of gentrification used by the American Planners Association, the rehabilitation and resettlement of low and moderate income urban neighborhoods by middle and higher income professionals. And by that metric, no, Plymouth's not gentrifying. No one has been displaced, nothing has been resettled recently, and Mr. Hartman hasn't had blue-collar residents yelling at him about being priced out of their homes. But there's another angle to this. These folks are Katie and Annie Donegan. They were my handlers for the day. Katie is a friend of mine. In fact, she made a cameo in the first episode. She mentioned that Plymouth might be a good case study for the podcast, and she was willing to take out the time to show me around. All right, so um, could you uh, introdu introduce yourselves for the camera? <laughs> um, so my name is Katie Donegan. I 
just graduated this semester from UMass Amherst. I'm a journalism and communications student. I've lived in Plymouth for my entire life, so yeah, tw 21 years in the 508. <laughs> my family and I live in downtown Plymouth, just two miles from the center of um, everything, where we are right now in this coffee shop. And we've always lived in the same home. I enjoy living in Plymouth. Um, I'm very, I consider myself grateful to have grown up in a, in a town like this. And my name is Annie Donegan. I am Katie's younger sister. I have also lived in Plymouth my entire life. I am 19 years old. I am a student at Stonehill College in Easton, Mass, which is just about 45 minutes away from here. I am just coming back from spending a few months living in Washington, D.C., so I'm readjusting to the, to the life here in a smaller town. They had both just moved back, which gave them an interesting perspective. They could see how the town had changed just in the time that they'd been away from college. And there has been quite a bit of change. I've watched it change so much in, in my lifetime. I think it's become, in general, a much younger town. Especially you'll see it in um, this downtown area. People come to Plymouth for entertainment, for the nightlife, for the live music, for the history, of course, and for the food, I would yes. say. <laughs> so can you elaborate a little more on like how you've seen Plymouth change? Yes. I, I want to pick a specific part of Plymouth first. Yeah. Uh, can... Oh, I know. How about the brand new high school building? So yes. when I was in high school, we had this terribly um, <sighs> decrepit. Decrepit. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Looking for the right word. Decrepit would be the most honest <laughs> adjective. Plymouth North, the building, was not in great shape. There were raccoons falling from the ceiling, students falling through the floor, animals sneaking into the building, and temporary trailer classrooms that ended up staying for 30 years. But for Katie's senior year and Annie's sophomore year, the school got rebuilt into a beautiful, like, state-of-the-art mansion, pretty much. <laughs> it looks like a mansion. Yeah. And the new technology and improved facilities were a godsend to both of them. And not only was there like this transition physically at the school, but also the school culture changed a lot. I know when I was a freshman, there were regular physical fights. Like violence was a problem. Smoking in bathrooms was a huge problem. And that literally disappeared within the three years that I finished high school. Back to gentrification, like it makes you wonder what was first, like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it the cultural change um, away from breaking the rules um, <laughs> or was it the building? What caused what, you know right. what I mean? And I, for me, it was kind of like the rules became stricter once the building became nicer. Students went along with it, but I do think that it was definitely a result of the administration's desire to keep it nice. Mm -hmm. It just makes me wonder if the town voted to not allow a new high school for us, would there have been this commitment to like improving behavior in students or not? Annie also worked for a nonprofit called Plymouth 400 that is doing quite a bit of work actually, renovating downtown Plymouth in preparation for its 400th anniversary in 2020. So I spent a summer interning with Plymouth 400 Inc., which is the company that is in charge of the overhaul of the infrastructure here in the town in preparation for the celebration of Plymouth's 400th anniversary, 1620 Landing of the Pilgrims, 2020, 400 years. The organization's main objective is to have a series of events in 2020 celebrating the, the anniversary and it's largely based off of Jamestown, Virginia's version of their 400th anniversary which was a few years back 
and they had major world leaders, members of the British royal family coming, and celebrations throughout a couple weeks. So we would like to bring that to Plymouth and have a similar thing. And of course, for the major main 400th anniversary celebrations, they want the visitors here to experience Plymouth in its best light. So they are planning and they have been implementing various projects around the waterfront area, which is where a lot of the events will be held. So they've been repairing sidewalks, recreating bridges, carving out more space for parks and parking areas so that they can accommodate what they hope to be thousands of visitors in 2020. Of course, telling the history of Plymouth requires reckoning with the outright land theft that marks its founding. Annie said that the Plymouth 400 staff understand this and kept regular contact with leaders in the Wampanoag tribe during the time she was there. I reached out to Plymouth 400 and they said they were committed to including the stories and voices of Native Americans in their events and programs. Their website lists a representative of the Wampanoag tribe on their board. See, you kind of mentioned a couple times, but do you think some of this gentrifying? Yeah, I do. I think it's always been, well, it's always been very white. So I think it's adjusting to sort of a new aesthetic in a way. There's, you know, new coffee shops popping up. Technology companies are moving in. I mean, I think it also has to do with just population growth. We have excellent school systems here. That's a huge factor for why people want to move here. It's convenient. It's gorgeous also. You have like the waterfront downtown. You have a little bit of everything here. Also motorcycles. Have you noticed displacement of folks? I would point to consolidation of certain populations because of the way that Plymouth has been. You know, property value is going up, taxes are very high in Plymouth. There seems to be clusters of underprivileged residential areas. Algonquin Heights would be one of those. And northern Plymouth is riddled with effects of the opioid epidemic to the point where it's a massive public health crisis. That's the other side of Plymouth. More and more, I think the town is building away from them and trying to create more spaces for higher income people, particularly along the waterfront. There's lots of apartment buildings coming in, luxury buildings, Mm. specifically marketed as luxury apartments. Whereas I'm not sure that the town's average income level has adjusted to that kind of Right, so in that way they're inviting higher income people to Exactly. come here to settle here. I'll show you. These waterfront condos are incredible. Multi-million dollar houses, condos. Warren Ave is... Oh boy. That's the, gonna be the old money part of the town, I'd argue. Big. And then the Pine Hills is this luxury. I would even call it another town. It's so isolated from the rest of Plymouth. This is from the Pine Hills website. The Pine Hills is a charming New England village located in Plymouth, where new homes range from innovative townhomes to classic single-family residences to elegant custom designs, where the shops and restaurants of the Village Green are refreshingly local and tasty, and where nature is a beautiful part of everyday life. Yeah, that came in a few years ago. Mm. Basically a luxury town and shopping center with a golf course. Yep. Your classic higher income neighborhood. And I remember thinking like, who's gonna live there? I don't really- We wouldn't know anyone that- Could afford it. So it was definitely trying to get other people from outside to come in. Yeah. If I were to describe Plymouth to someone, I would say that it would look like a patchwork quilt in that there's groups or areas of Plymouth that are very insular and 
that I think is a symptom of, of gentrification because there are groups of people that are consolidated and that upward mobility is a challenge because of systemic discrimination against whatever it may be, race, class, gender, sexuality, etc. The patchwork of little areas that are all homogenous within themselves. Correct, yes. You know what? Gentrification in Plymouth, I think, is important to study because when you think about the whole history of Plymouth, the idea that there's only 400 years of it is wrong. Plymouth yeah. did exist before 1620. America just doesn't care about it um, because we didn't own it or take it yet. It wasn't called Plymouth. Yes. I don't even know the history of Plymouth pre-settlers. And gentrification is in the same vein as settler colonialism. Like do you get do you get me? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I think that? it's taking a space and making it conform to a certain idea, whether that be middle class lifestyle, white culture. It's changing a space according to what you want it to be. That's certainly what happened with the pilgrim settling, is they landed in this space and they claimed it. Right. Like and couldn't you call that gentrification too? After I interviewed Katie and Annie, they took me on a little tour of Plymouth. At least part of it. Depending on traffic, you can spend 40 minutes driving from one end of Plymouth to the other. So behind us is the 1812 courthouse. And it's one of the projects that Annie was talking about that Plymouth 400 is responsible for, fundraising to do restoration projects like that. It actually used to be a courthouse up until like 30 years ago. My mother even interned there. They are restoring it to its 1812 aesthetic right now. And I think that's the coolest part about Plymouth 400 is like the restoration stuff and the archaeology stuff that they're doing. Like, it is, it is awesome. You know what? It's better than luxury condos. Um, I'm glad they preserved the building. I think it's beautiful. So we're heading into North Plymouth now. This is one of the areas that I mentioned that is a hotspot for heroin addiction and just low-income clusters. And you'll notice when we drive through like the center of North, North Plymouth, it looks a lot different than where we just were in the center of downtown historic Plymouth. Yeah, one thing that I noticed about downtown Plymouth was that all the buildings were old, but they were old in like a kind of like a charming way. Yep. Like, yep. like there was definite wear and tear in all of the windows, but it wasn't enough that like you were like fearing for your safety or anything like that. Yeah, and here now you see where I'm, what I'm talking about here. Oh, I see. North Plymouth has its own miniature downtown, and it was in much worse shape than the town center. The buildings were older, verging on shabby, and smack in the middle of the main street was a shell of a building, chartered with boarded up windows. Then um, it's sad. I hope that Plymouth 400 or whoever's, you know, gonna be responsible for, for beautification gives North Plymouth a little bit of love because they could use it. Oh my, holy moly. What? Walmart is gone, the old Walmart is obliterated over there. Wait, what? So, I didn't think it was ever gonna happen. This is the Cordage Park Center. This used to be a popping cordage factory, making ropes, making thread for 
the fishing industry over here. Now there's some businesses in here, mostly like Quincy College, I think occupational therapy places, banks, charities. But wow, that, that's a surprise because there used to be a huge vacant building over there where all the construction is. Um, so it makes me wonder what they're planning on doing with that land. Probably more luxury condos if I'm Yeah, I feel like honest. this site. What I'm noticing to these buildings here is that they have the aesthetic and the window shape of like factory windows, yep. but they're much larger windows. Like the proportions and like the, like yeah. the basic shapes are the same, yeah. but. I mean, who wouldn't want massive windows? Look at the view that you have. That's the ocean a... is right there. Holy, wow. I could not see the horizon. Sea and sky and fog were one, a real life oil painting of blue and gray and white with Cape Cod salt stirred into the paint, lingering in my breath. The foreground was still an empty lot with a chain-link fence and a brick shed seemingly scheduled for demolition. But I saw true beauty, beauty that some developer will soon distill and rent out for a glorious profit. And finally, the Donegan sisters took me to a beach in Plymouth, and I could be an invisible eyeball just for a moment. Let's recap. First, how does Plymouth compare to our preliminary set of conditions for gentrification? The ones we pulled out in our first episode. Here's what matches. Plymouth was previously very, very rural, but it's building up quite quickly. The town received an influx of new money, which has gone into some really pretty housing and commercial developments. The town is being heavily renovated, at least some parts of it are, and property values have risen with the development. There seems to have been a change in culture, although that might just be Plymouth North High School. And of course, Plymouth doesn't check every box. I don't think Plymouth got whiter. From what I can tell, it's always been pretty white, at least since the mid 1600s, of course. Working class folks haven't been priced out. In fact, there are still plenty of lower income areas in Plymouth, for better or for worse. So is Plymouth gentrifying? It's complicated. On one hand, no. No one is being priced out of Plymouth the town. But on the other hand, maybe Plymouth is still gentrifying. Remember, this town is huge. You can carve it into discrete pieces. The main desk in the Department of Planning and Development literally has a map that does just that. And the municipal government is developing some parts of town far more than other parts. It's just a fact of having a finite budget. 
but the size of Plymouth means that there are some parts of town that are really, really fancy and expensive, and other parts of town that are gripped by poverty. So if your claim about gentrification rests on lower income people being pushed into a hole while other places get luxury condos, then Plymouth might match that description. Like I said, it's complicated, but we knew that already. And the fact that whether Plymouth is gentrifying depends on your perspective does shed a bit more light on what gentrification might really be. I think we need another case study. Next week, we'll venture even closer to Boston, to Chelsea, Massachusetts. Thank you to Lee Hartman for lending your time and thoughts to this podcast. And thank you to Katie Donegan and Annie Donegan for taking out an entire afternoon to tell your stories and show me around your beautiful, beautiful hometown. Writing, music, narration, and production by Ajay Pandey. This is an independent study for UMass Amherst under the guidance of Professor Jenny Adams and Professor Sanjay Arwade. For questions, comments, critiques, and concerns, you can contact me at afonde at umass.edu. Thank you for listening.